Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. I am Professor D. I'm Crockpot. And we have the joy and honor of continuing our series, Finding Our Hope in Isaiah, in the Isaiah series. And we have already looked at two great sessions, and tonight is a famous one. Uh, this one is in is in chapter nine. This is is something that we we hear. Uh, what was it, guys? Was in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I'm trying to remember. Uh, it, this is something that you find in greeting cards. This is a very one that's famous at Christmas time. We remember. Uh, but yeah, so we are going to be in Isaiah chapter nine tonight. Let me open with a brief word of prayer. And then we will journey forth. God, thank you for this series, and I thank you for this text. And I'm thankful for, for Mick and for John and for their journeying with me tonight as we dig into your word. We just pray, God, that we be challenged and encouraged. And that for our listeners listening to this, Lord, that they would be blessed by this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So... Uh, we're going to try to follow the uh, the John Mick Joel format tonight, so that, that works out really well. So let's begin with uh, kind of a historical verse, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Well, John, you're kind of our historical guy in, the, in these series. Well, what, what are some historical and geographic background? Or, or maybe if you could just walk us through the significance of the areas listed here. Sure, no problem. So the land brought into contempt in, in former time, that reference there, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. These are two of Israel's northernmost tribal territories. If you're kind of following this story here, we, we've been in like 2 Kings 15, 16 uh, region. In 2 Kings 15, 29, we get some, some uh, backstory there about those two territories. Assyria, which has been this growing threat to Israel and Judah, uh, conquers that whole area. And that, that, that account is in uh, 2 Kings 15. They sweep through Zebulun, Naphtali, up in the north of Israel. Um, another translation of this of this passage says that um, Zebulun and Naphtali were humiliated; they were devastated, brought low. This region surrounding this is the it's surrounding and, and immediately north of the Sea of Galilee, which is at the mouth of the Jordan River. It's where the Jordan River starts. <clears throat> starts, excuse me. So the land above uh, the land beyond the Jordan, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. It says because this is right on the edge of Israel's tribal allotments. There are a lot of Gentiles around, depending on which side of the Sea of, of Galilee you're on. The land beyond the Jordan is just another way of referring to those same tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, that were wiped out by the Assyrian invasion. As part of God's restoration of Israel, those areas will be restored to their former glory. Actually, probably more glorious than they were before. Well, that's great. That just, I would imagine just, just to, the casual reading of this chapter, we all want to get to verses six and seven. We, we, we start up here and all those names and like, oh my goodness, I, I'm kind of lost already. So 
we're, we're very grateful, John, for your, your, your just basic geographical unpacking of this and help us understand, you know, especially in terms of the Kings and Chronicles, where we're going to land. I know that helps me just to kind of go back and see. I know like last week you, you gave us a good grounding and our readers could go back and find out, you know, hey, why don't you read those chapters and see if Ahaz followed Isaiah's advice or not, follow the word of the Lord or not. And we found out he didn't. And so you read the chapter and it just gets worse and worse. And so and so it makes a chapter like chapter nine necessary because Ahaz did not uh, did not heed the word of the Lord. All right. Well, thanks for, for helping with verse one there. So we continue to uh, we'll make we, we continue here with uh, in verse one. And, and, and I'm just going to, you know, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he made glorious. So Mick, uh, help us understand kind of like a theological understanding of this verse in terms of, I, mean, I don't know, but I, I'm kind of seeing God's grace here, this idea of this once was humbled, now is on. What's going on here with this verse, maybe in a theological sense, Mick? Well, it's that famous word there, but, you know, uh, that that indicating a transition into God's amazing grace, not unlike Ephesians 2, 4. Uh, this, th that word there is, is, is always, uh, well, usually in this particular case, it definitely is. It, 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 to me, it's like I, Ephesians just popped right into my head with that big butt there. Mm -hmm. uh, the previous chapter, which we didn't cover, but just to kind of give a quick recap, is that the previous chapter spells out God's judgment and wrath over the northern kingdom of Israel, but he also uh, there's Judah gets mentioned in there as, as well. You know, but but there's a time that that is coming when God is going to restore her fortunes. Um, and notice, whereas God spells out the reasons for His judgment in the prior chapters, no reason is given whatsoever for His grace to restore both houses of Israel, both the northern kingdom. And, and the southern kingdom afterwards um but the fact other outside of the fact that that god says that he's going to do it that that's that's god's grace because god says he's going to do it he has no reason to do so in fact he has every reason not to do so and yet he chooses to still restore israel for and judah it's uh, once judah goes through its problems eventually um and to be clear he is really focusing mostly on the northern kingdom Hmm. This is profound. J just listening to John and to Mick, all you guys pulled out of one verse that so many people might even consider flyover country. And this, this is really great stuff. We continue to verses two and three. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And I saw two quick things here, guys. We see, uh, we see just kind of playing off that idea of grace. We, we see some wonderful things happening to these people in the future that only God can do. And the first thing we've got here is some kind of a transformation. These people are living in this darkness and they're, they're, wait, they're waiting for light to come. And that day is going to come. And so these people who were once in a dark state, they're going to have light shown upon them. They're going to be walking and living in, in, in where light has shown. So God has brought a transformation to a hopeless people. And the second thing God does here is you have the remnant, which seems like this small little group of people, 
all of a sudden, one day, the, the, the remnant may seem like, like, it's, like it's, it's a paucity or like it's, it's a very small group of people. Behold, this multitude of the redeemed. So only God's grace, the gift that God is giving here, that none of us can deserve, is going to bring this great light of transformation in their lives. And it's going to bring an enlarging of God's people. To some degree, though that remnant may be small, there one day will be a multitude of those celebrating. So already here, Isaiah is painting a picture that we're looking forward to. And we're wondering, wow, God, what are you going to do? Because this is, as John pointed out, th th this country up there is, is, is going to be quickly conquered. And it's going to be nowheresville. It's going to be like an armpit of an armpit. It's nothing. These people aren't going to have anything going for them. And this is where God is going to shine his light in the area that matters the least. And he's going to bring increase with the people who have seen nothing but decrease. There's something really cool going on here. Just the buildup for the great promise of six and seven is I'm getting excited even, even trying to get there. These, this, 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 this verse four by its, uh, verse two and three by itself. It's, it's got me excited about what God can and will do. All yeah, right, Joel, that's, that's so cool. You know, yeah, you, you bring a good point. We're used to, uh, the focus is always on how small that rem that remnant is. It's a remnant, just a remnant, just a few leftovers who God has, has rescued, has set aside for a purpose. It's nice. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air. To see this perspective it's like no it will be it'll be sizable it'll be he'll, he'll multiply that nation there will be others to share in that joy with you dare we say hope will yeah. there be hope we, we hope we hope so all right so verse four thanks john verse oh, four. hold on a second before we get oh, to verse right. four we do uh need to bring out one thing that i think we we've not touched on in the, this discussion galilee should be very familiar to our to our re to the readers and listeners mm -hmm. In the New Testament, you know, and we we can't ignore the fact that Galilee is mentioned here, and especially with the things that are coming up, you know, because Galilee it happens to be Jesus's old childhood stomping grounds, right? And a lot of his uh, earthly ministry was there in Capernaum and Galilee. That's so, right, and they had all that. Uh, they had it, you know. Country bumpkin accents. <laughs> That's right. They, they, were, they were noticeable because that they were Galilee twang. That right? Galilee twang. That's right. <laughs> so these are the ones that the upper crust looked down upon, even in Jesus' day. And yeah, that's great. I'm so glad because this is Galilee. Uh, the ESV as you read Galilee of the nations. That's Galilee of the Gentiles. So this Galilee is of, Galilee of the Goys. That's right. So right. No, this is the Goy. This is the Goy territory. Chooses that spot to really launch his ministry, huh? That's right. right. Yeah. I mean, and that's, we get this idea that of all the places that Jesus could have been, who could have, could have landed and could have, you know, could the Jewish have Messiah of all right. places. Yeah. So it's like God is looking towards the little people. He's looking towards that are overlooked that are, I mean, this is, this is cool. I'm glad, Mick, I'm glad you, I'm glad you pressed pause on me there because we we can't skip this idea that Galilee is brought up here. Whereas those of us who read the Gospels, we get Galilee all the time there. And we're not expecting it in Isaiah, right. but that's the whole point. Because the Gospel, the, the ministry of Jesus is fulfilling this. The light that's shown, I'm the light of the world. Yeah, this is, this is good stuff. Okay, this is, I'm great. Thanks for, thanks for, for, 
for dra- dra- dragging that out here. Yeah. That, that needed to be said and it needed to be brought up because this is a, a key moment in salvation history that Isaiah has given this a foreshadowing for. All right. So verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So we got another historical idea, idea here, John. What what images are recalled by this prophecy in verse four? Yeah, uh, well, first, I just want to note that um, the word shoulder just kind of tuck that away because that'll pop up again. Shoulder, you know, the, the seat of this enormous burden, which the people of Judah uh, and, and before united Israel have carried since their enslavement in Egypt. And, and metaphorically speaking, that's all that you think of all that weight as being on their shoulder. And one day God will relieve it. And and what day will that be on? It'll be, what, or or I guess what he says here is that day will, will be as on the day of Midian. So what's the day of Midian? Well, it's the, it's the original uh, 300. <laughs> I, what was it? 300 against, um, I don't know how many, but a huge Midianite army. God was like whittling down Gideon. Um, um, this is like written, this chapter is written by Dr. Seuss, I think, Gideon against Midian. Um, Gideon was one of the judges who, who was overseeing Israel at the time that they were facing this huge uh, form of formidable foreign power, Midian. And God's like whittling down Gideon's army first from like 30,000 to 10,000, and then from 10,000 to three, 300, and leads them to victory against the Midianites. And what Isaiah is saying here is that uh, saying to, to his audience, the king and the people of Judah, they should look at that instance in Israel's history as a template of how God works in their behalf, what he has done and what he will do again, no matter what predicament they're in, even if they're in a, a very similar predicament. And the, the, the numbers don't matter. They didn't matter then when it was those 300 guys against that entire army. Sure as heck won't matter now. Yeah, I, I think this links back also to your original historical reference, because if I remember my judges correctly, Gideon would be seen as the deliverer of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Like these mm-hmm. very tribes that are originally showing up in yeah, verse one. That's a great point. Gideon was the, was the one, he delivered this territory. And so this is like a great image that Isaiah is giving us, linking it to Gideon. Gideon was the hometown hero of these guys. And so they would look to Gideon as, wow, that, 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 that was our guy. And right. that just enhances it. So I'm, I'm glad you brought oh. that up. I'm glad you brought up this, this reminder to, 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 to Gideon, because those of us who's reading the word Midian or hearing it read to us on the podcast, we're not going to jump there. That's not, that's not where we're going to think immediately. So I'm glad, I'm glad you helped us with that. All right. So we got one, two, three, and four. And are we ready for verse five? All right, so for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So there seems to be a great victorious moment here for God and his people. And people, as we just mentioned in verse four, they're liberated. And so this oppression is gone and some kind of a slavery or oppression is now defeated. And so they've been delivered in some way. So now what images are we seeing here? What are the fruits? What's going on in verse five, Mick? Well, beyond the victory, the imagery seems to be uh, of, of some sort of an ending 
you know, an end to wars, period. Um, as their as their war uh, gear is burned up, which indicates that there is no longer a need for that kind of an apparel because there's there will be wars no more. And the you of verse four, who's mentioned, has taken care of it. Mm. I, w I wonder if there's a, if there's like a, an analogy to those of us who have experienced peace in the midst of our war. And maybe it's the war uh, that in the midst of our sin and shame, and especially you know, a lot of us in recovery, we're dealing with this day, daily battle. And there's hope in the midst of a war tied to God. And are we seeing anything? There's, there seems to be some kind of a transformation of this moment here. Almost like you're, you're, you're turning your, 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 your swords into plowshares or so, however that versus. Is there some kind of a reversal going on here? That would oh. give us hope, Mick. Yeah, with, with the physical imagery of being a, a foreshadow for for spiritual and internal reality, there will come a time when when that inner war that 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 rages on in our soul will be over in the fullest sense. Mm -hmm. uh, on one level, it is over because of Jesus's victory on Calvary. Uh, the U of verse four takes care of that. And on another level, when Jesus comes around the second time that inner war is going to be completely done away with. I mean, now it, 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 there's like a, there's a, a now and, and still to come where we know that we have this, this peace with God. And in that sense, the war is over because we have a peace with God, but we're still wrestling with, with the, the presence of sin. But there's going to be that day where, where, when that's going to be completely done away with. It, it, you know, and true end of all wars once and for all, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So it, it appears that God is providing something actually profound. Yeah. That Isaiah is picturing something that, yes, there's, gonna, there's going to be peace on the outside. There's going to be transformation and hope. But dare I say it's going to provide peace on the inside? And yeah. there's transformation of our daily struggle. I mean, this is something that I can only imagine the original audience wrestling with and going, my goodness, especially when they're facing geopolitical tension that's around them and the threat of Assyria. And, and even beyond that, who knows what could come after us? At this point, we don't know who could come after Assyria. Now, we, we understand those of us who understand more of, of the way it plays out, that Babylon's eventually going to come too. But Right now, Assyria is the big dog that's scaring everybody, and here God is calling his shot like Babe Ruth of the Polo Grounds yet again. And it's I think we also need to realize, sorry about that, um, yeah, I think we need to realize that this is like the rise of, of, of superpowers in the world, you know? Really, Assyria really is the first major power to start this whole campaign about taking over other countries in, in, in such force. Uh, and you know, this is the beginnings of that, you know. Um, this sets it up for Babylon and then Greece and, and Rome later, you know. But this is really the beginning of that. So the this is a very scary time in human history. Yeah. And we like the fact that verse five, I think, sets a stage for the power of the gospel. Because while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Mm. I mean, there's this idea that at some point, 
enemies are not going to be fighting anymore. At some point, reconciliation is going to happen at some point. And I, I just wonder if this absence of war or the, or the war that was happening, that these bloody garments are just going to be tossed into the fire because we're not going to fight in them anymore. And so I wonder if there's a transformation coming. And we're left to wonder as readers and as the original listeners, I wonder as well, how in the world is God going to make this happen? And aren't we blessed for the very famous words that are going to come in verses six and seven? For this is how God is going to make this wonderful, wonderful thing happen. There's a great hope, the great light in the darkness, this idea of Emmanuel from last session from chapter seven, that we're already expecting something going to happen here. This, this, this virgin will be a child. We're, we're already looking towards the future. We're going, what are you going to do, God? What's going to be the sign? And here's chapter two of that right here. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Wow. That, that miraculously sounding thing, a son getting those kind of titles and names, that's how God's going to do it. So let me just briefly walk you through this. This is stuff we've, we've heard. Uh, so I, I think this was the Charlie Brown uh, Christmas special. Every year we, you got Linus up there and, and talking, okay, I know there's a Christmas story, but there's something going on here. All right, so a child is going to, there, there's a heritage here. So if the fact that we're going to get a child, a child is born, this is something where um, he, this person is going to have some kind of ancestry. A son is given. So all of a sudden, this would be the joy of every household looking for uh, in terms of, of, of dignity of, yeah, he's going to be, yes, there's maleness with the word son, but all of a sudden the royal, from a royal standpoint, this is now taking shape. This is going to be a prince. This is going to be a leader. A son now gives the king an heir. There's something going on here. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. This person's going to be not just some random person born, but a gift who is given from God. And uh, John mentioned previously about the shoulders. Well, yeah, the, the, the shoulders, the burden that was on the shoulders of the Israelites, the Judahites, it is now going to be born by his government. A very rare word here for government, but this government is going to be on his shoulders. There's something about the burdens of the people that this child that was given is going to take upon himself. Gosh, that's almost sounding like a gospel language. He's going to bear my burden. He's going to take upon for his own people a burden, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, this could either mean that he's a supernatural counselor or he's a counselor that gives supernatural counsel, which are both impossible for just a random guy to do. So this is somebody that we're going to follow. This would be kind of like David uh, once had a special counsel, like a, a, a Heathophel or something like that, that everyone marveled at the counsel he gave. This would be like him times 20. This would be like an exponentially most, more beneficial version of that counselor. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. 
yeah, this very idea. It's almost like of the Emmanuel prophecy, with us is God. Isaiah is reminding us, yeah, by the way, take seriously the L part. It's like, this person is going to be called God. This reminds us of like in, in, in Daniel, in a later, later verse here in the Bible, Daniel chapter 7, the, the, the Son of Man is in, the, is in the presence of the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man receives worship. And the Ancient of Days has nothing to say about that. So already we got this idea of two different characters who are going to receive the title of God. You've got the one who's going to give the son, and the son itself is going to be called God. I mean, we've got like a Psalm 2 kind of reference here. This is something pretty impressive, that this, that this very, uh, yeah, God doesn't share. Great point. It's got a text in. Great point. God shares his worship with no one. And here it is, and that God this this unto us a son is born a child is given yes yes he's going to be wonderful counselor mighty god wow and we got a positive person like what in the world and then he's going to be called everlasting father now when you look at the word father from an old testament understanding that means that the father cares for the vulnerable and the helpless the father cares for his people. The father disciplines his people. The father responds to his people. So we're expecting this son to be concerned about the lowly, to be concerned about the vulnerable, to be concerned about the broken and repentant ones. We're not at all surprised when he gives the prodigal son story later on. A broken, repentant guy turning back to the father. This child, this son, this Emmanuel is going to be the one giving supernatural counsel. Mighty God himself, everlasting father and prince of peace. Prince of peace is peace is well-being. Peace is freedom from anxiety. Peace is goodwill among men. Peace, of course, is the opposite of war. Peace is the realization of God's favor. And this very prince is going to bring that. This is no mere political figure. There's something going on here. This transformation that we talked about, is only going to be possible if God somehow enters into our stories and brings that transformation. And I think we're, we're seeing that here. I think this is the promise that, that, that we're going to latch on to in the New Testament, because he's going to have this government that's going to increase, and, and, and the peace is going to have no end. So that tells us that it's going to be an empire, but it's not going to be imperial. We're not going to have exploitation of people. Even though his power is going to increase and his dominion is going to increase, there's not going to be any exploitation. There's not going to be any, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, we're told. That's not going to be the case here. Wow. He's going to reign on the throne of David. Ah, oh, he's linking it to David here. Okay. There was only one king that reigned on that throne after David, and that was Solomon. And then it got taken. And then we had this divided kingdom. Israel has, as a unified country, has not had this hope yet. This would have sounded great. This also, by the way, would have set the stage for Emmanuel and for David's throne. That once again, every new king, that there might be this chance. Is this the Messiah to come? Is this this precious one to come? Is he going to be that new king? Or is that new king going to be that son? Be the father of this? I don't know. There's something going on here. This messianic, this urgency of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The throne of David over his kingdom, establishing it, justice and righteousness 
We've never seen a nation like that. We've never seen a government like that. And that's our future. We get to look forward to that. And it's all going to be accomplished by Yahweh of armies, the Lord of hosts. It's not going to be accomplished by a vote or by a political campaign or by, you know, 51% deciding this over 49. Oh, no. It's not going to be a grand war that's going to set this thing in motion. No, only the zeal of God making this happen. So thanks for letting me kind of walk through those, those two verses. Anything that we want to share, John or Mick, anything else from, from verses one to seven before we get to our close? Did we miss anything? No, but I, I think uh, you, you get pictures of, of the unity of God. And even basically with that one name, you really get names of, of all the members of the Trinity, the counselor generally being something that's used of the Holy Spirit, the uh the everlasting father used obviously of the father and the prince of peace generally used of jesus so you even get this kind of picture there of the trinity you know and how one can represent the other two at any given time you know kind of like when when philip asked jesus hey show us the father jesus says you're looking at me you're looking at the father and then when jesus says that the holy spirit's going to be with you representing me in you as well so you you get this picture of, of the strong unity there as well thank mick yeah i'd never i'd never thought of of um of trinity in this passage because i'd never thought of holy spirit in this passage but when you talk about wonderful counselor which which member of the trinity at least today does that really embody it's the spirit he is our counselor he's our our helper and our guide who has been who has been imparted on us by Christ when he when he ascended? He's our wonderful counselor there. So yeah, that's that's really cool that you point that out. I mean, to link it back to last week, this is the promise that Ahaz refused to to, to follow. Yeah, he refused to trust in a wondrous promise, and like God is doubling down. Ahaz refused to show faith in the, in the midst of all he was going through. God gave him a sign, and now God's doubling down on this sign. So now David, linked to the tribe of Judah, there's hope going to come from Judah. And Isaiah is telling this to Judah. Even though its leader, Ahaz, doesn't really want to trust mm -hmm. God. It's like God is, is doubling down on this. Yeah. That there's, there's hope now on the horizon. And he uses the also ran part of the empire, a part of the nation, you know, up in Israel, Zebulun, and that. he uses that to illustrate it, that hope can even come to them. And here, hope's going to come through David's line. I think of the chapters we've done thus far, this one's already really glaring New Testament all over it. Mm. Amen. All right, well, let's bring this to a close. I realize this has gone uh, a little quicker than others have gone. So we're, we're going to look at hope. So all, all three of us are going to take on hope right now. So we're going to start with, uh, John, what is communicated? To, we're going to start with what is communicated to the ones who need hope. Mick's going to take what's communicated about the one who is providing the hope. And I'll take moving forward with that hope. So, so John, so Crockpot, what is communicated to the ones who need that hope in this chapter? Sure. So it starts with a very hope in a very general sense, starting in verse 9-1, uh, especially the beginning of 9-1, you could say 9-1-A, and it reads, but there will be gloom, excuse me, let me pull it up, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
So God's justice, he always seeks to right wrongs, you know, even the scales. <clears throat> he sees and hears the suffering of his people and their suffering and anxiety is, is not forever. Basically what was will no longer be. So this is like a purpose statement for the following several verses, suggesting there's no reason to fear. Everything will be, be okay. But it doesn't, it doesn't give us much more detail than that. Um, verses two and three gets a little bit more, you know, we get some kind of nice sounding imagery about going back, going from dark to light, making the nation fruitful, multiplying it, causing, causing joy. Okay, all that's nice. But uh, verse four and five is where we start really getting more specific. Okay, what is this? Uh, what is the essence of this hope? What is it going to actually, how is it going to bear out? There's going to be, there's hope for military and political victory that will pave the way for these nice sounding promises in verses two and three. God will remove this heavy yoke of oppression that's been placed on Judah on their shoulder by, by way of the Assyrian invasion. And he's going to utterly destroy this enemy on Judah's behalf. Now in verses six and seven, we learn that the reason that we have this hope, this political hope, this resounding military and political for the for the this huge excuse me military political victory that's coming the reason we have that to begin with is because of our messianic hope now isaiah is kind of pulling back the curtain on this more he he first started shedding light on it in chapter 7 and he's pulling back the curtain more on it now it's like this slow reveal on this figure this messianic king who is the the embodiment of hope who is, he's like identified with all these super high credentials, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Um, Joel, you really, uh, you really expounded these really well. Um, only a figure like that can actually make possible these huge promises for flourishing and success and, and political victory on every level. Not that it's merely political, like you said, right? It's, it's so, it transcends that but it's like a political victory on a on a level that, that the people can't even under can't even comprehend at this point it sounds too good to be true and yet he's real this figure is real and god has promised that he'll come and israel uh isaiah excuse me is beginning to prepare his audience to recognize that figure when he does because it's one thing for them to you know have hope have this great hope and to wait for this figure this messiah but that hope is kind of empty and meaningless if they don't at least partly understand who it is that they're waiting for and what his character is so that they can actually identify him and and give him proper worship when he comes yeah hope definitely has a focus yeah but, but faith has an object so mick mm. what is communicated about the one who's providing that hope god himself well, well, for one thing, uh, the one providing the hope does so out of his amazing grace. Mm. Nowhere in all of scripture is a reason given for saving us outside of the fact that, that God simply chose to. I mean, that that's basically grace in a nutshell. Uh, that alone ought to prompt us to a moment of like pause and reflection on God in, in our lives. Uh, we don't provide God a single reason, neither they in their situation or we in ours we don't provide god a single reason to save us uh in verse three you that is god and his messiah aka jesus he is the light 
that gives that provides that hope from the darkness. In verse four, he is the one who provides the joy. He brings an end to all wars and conflict in, in, in the fullest sense of that. And, and focusing on just one of the names mentioned in verse six, he is mighty God. He is mighty God. Now, now that's bankable hope because it's God who's providing it. He's good for it. And, and, and he can't, he will never, and he can never default on that. Amen. And his zeal is going to accomplish this. Yeah. We are zealous about so many things. Jesus had a Simon who was a zealot, who was zealous about the right things. And no matter what we're passionate about, no matter what we strive for, we're always going to have some kind of selfishness tied in, but not God. God is zealous about his glory. God is zealous about accomplishing his plan. There's hope here. And I, I love, I love how we have what's communicated about the one who needs hope and the one who provides hope. So how do we move forward with that hope? Well, I've got three directions for us. Upward, outward, and inward. Moving upward. How do we move forward with this hope? Well, guess what? This one is called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. And so we have this very peace with God, the one, the Father we can now trust and depend upon. What's hope for us? The fact that we have God who not only cares about us, but expects us to depend upon him, to trust in him, and to follow him. We now have that hope. That's our direction. As we, as we consider upward, as, as we consider God, he is our mighty God. He is that everlasting father. And he has now brought that transformation that was prophesied about here. How about outward? Well, the Prince of Peace comes into play here. Because now we not only have peace with God, but we can have that shalom peace with one another. We can not only bear each other's burdens, but we can forgive of the ones who've wronged us. The villain doesn't have to remain the villain, and the victim can find hope in forgiveness. There, there, there's peace now for our relationships. The gospel will provide that peace. The basis for our forgiveness will allow us to forgive one another of, our, of the sins committed against each of us. So we can look upward for our hope. We've got an outward direction, and we now have an inward hope. And that inward hope is tied to wonderful counseling. So now we can receive that counsel from God. We can open up his word and it can counsel us and give us a direction that we need. The psalm thus gets fulfilled, that thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So now we have direction and we can trust God. We can have peace not only with God, but with others. But this very hope that we can one day enjoy and that we get to enjoy now in Christ is that we get to receive his wonderful counsel. And that guides us. And that gives us purpose that gives us unity, and that gives us peace. What a great hope we get to march forward in. This has been Masterclass Theology from Isaiah chapter 9. We'll, we'll see you next week in chapter 11. God bless. As always, as always, I'm Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. And I'm Crockpot. Have a good day. God bless. Amen. Merry Christmas. <laughs> hey, you know, we might have broken... This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.